Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Good evening, everyone. I know it's probably been a while since you've seen someone with a decent hairline preach from this pulpit, so... You're welcome for that one. It's a sight for sore eyes, I'm sure. Before I jump into the passage, I'd like to give a little background on the letter of Romans. What was happening in Rome and Paul's purpose for writing this letter. Uh, It's believed that Paul wrote Romans while he was in Corinth on his third missionary journey. And this letter provides the most extensive explanation of Paul's theology. The primary purpose of this letter was to unite the Jews and the Gentiles in the faith. Uh, Now before Christ, many of the Jews, people like the Pharisees, believed that in order to be saved one must follow strict rules and regulations. This is seen many times in the Gospels as the Pharisees challenge Jesus' teachings and attempt to incriminate him for not following them. Uh, The Gentiles were then those outside of God's chosen race. Therefore, it was believed that they couldn't be saved. But the message of the Gospel is that you don't have to be born into the nation of Israel to be saved. And you don't have to follow all those strict rules and guidelines. Through faith in Christ, anyone could be saved. Now, the idea that someone could be saved through faith alone was still in conflict during Paul's ministry. Uh, In the letter of Romans, much of Paul's focus is actually on Jew-Gentile issues, suggesting that this conflict was prominent. Paul's goal in writing Romans, then, was to unite the church in Rome in an understanding of God's grace and the justification that we receive through Christ. So if you would, turn to Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 with me. Uh, Let me read the passage, I'll pray, and then get started. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for tonight and the opportunity that it is to be preaching from this pulpit. Uh, I thank you for your word that you've given to us and all the ways that you've blessed us, Lord. I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you and that you would bless the rest of this time that we have here together. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to give you all fair warning. I will be highlighting four main points from this passage tonight, not just three. So if that throws you off, I apologize. Um... But let me run through the points real quick. The first is that we have peace with God through justification. The second is that we can rejoice in our hope for the future. The third is that we can rejoice in our present suffering. And lastly, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's peace with God through justification, rejoicing in the hope of the future, rejoicing in our suffering in the present, and the Holy Spirit at work in us. So let's take a look at the first one. Paul opens up verse 1 with the word, Therefore meaning that he's building off of something he said previously. So let's take a look at the verses before these. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 25 is called the promise realized through faith. In this passage, Paul writes about God's promise to Abraham to make him the father of many nations and Abraham's undoubting faith through that time. Paul touches on his unwavering, unwavering faith in verse 19. He says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul continues then to explain how Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness and how those words apply to us also. And this is where he picks up in chapter 5 where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now another thing that's important to note about the beginning of chapter 5 is that this is where Paul shifts focus in Romans. He spends the majority of chapters 1 through 4 discussing those who have yet to put their faith in Christ and God's righteousness and his wrath. It's evident then in chapter 5, he switches to those who have already placed their faith in Christ. The first of these things that Paul talks about in relation to the people who have already put their faith in Christ is justification. Now, for anybody else out there who grew up in this church, or at least went through years of Sunday school as a kid, there was always that one definition of justification that stood out. Justification was God making it just as if you've never sinned. Now, as much as I love this definition, it doesn't quite get at the significance of justification. Justification is when God pardons us, declares us to be just, and accepts us through faith in Christ despite our sins. Just like with Abraham, our faith is counted to us as righteousness. It's God declaring us righteous, and then treating us based on that declaration. But what's even more amazing is that a result of this justification by faith is peace with God. Now, Bible commentator Leon Morris makes a distinction here between the peace of God and peace with God. He says that he, being Paul, is not referring to a subjective feeling, but the objective fact that the justified are no longer enemy of God, but are at peace with him. So not a feeling of peace, the fact of peace. We tend to get these confused, don't we? We think when we don't feel peaceful or when things are stressful and hard that we are not at peace with God because we don't feel that subjective feeling. But it's not the same peace that's referenced in Philippians 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. And it's not just a lack of conflict or enmity between us and God. Rather, it's a reconciliation or restoration of relationship with God. Because of Christ's righteousness, we have direct access to God. We have the privilege of speaking to the creator of the universe. Paul then goes on to say, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now as I was studying this passage, this sentence brought up a couple of questions. Uh, What is this grace in which we stand? Is it referring to justification or is it referring to something else? In John Murray's commentary on Romans, he he presents the idea that if Paul were referring to the grace of peace with God, that might be unnecessary repetition, since that is exactly what Paul just said in verse 1. Rather, it seems that Paul is referring to justification as this peace in which we stand, and he's emphasizing the fact that we only have access to this justification through Christ, nothing else. And this peace with God is then a result or a consequence of that justification, again, through Christ. This is what Paul's trying to emphasize here. There's no way that we can be justified, and there's no way that we can have peace with God except through Jesus Christ. But again, this phrase at the end about rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is curious. Paul could very well have just ended the sentence with this grace in which we stand and and carried on. But he's clearly emphasizing the attitude of rejoicing. If we look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the author says here that he, that being Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ is the glory of God. His return will be the full revelation of God's glory. Therefore Paul is saying, and we rejoice in Christ who is our access to justification, our path to peace with God, and our hope for the future. And that takes me to my second point, which is the hope that we have of the future. Now, because this is the youth night service, many of you here are part of the youth group or know people in the youth group, so I assume you've probably heard of this, but I also assume that many of you haven't. 
But following our annual fall retreat this past November, a few youth leaders and students, myself included, decided to start acoustic worship nights about once a month where we dedicate two hours solely to singing praises to God. We decided to call these times of worship Eden Nights. And the idea behind this name is that when a group of believers comes together and spends time praying and singing praises to God, away from all distractions, we tend to catch a very, very small glimpse of what it might have been like before the fall, which is where we get the name Eden, or what it might be like when Christ returns and we are in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth. Matthew 18.20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We take it for granted that we have the freedom to come worship together on the Lord's Day every week, and that there's no one from stopping us from gathering again on Wednesdays or whenever we would like. We ought to be so full of gratitude for times like these because they remind us of the hope that we have for the return of Christ and the final revelation of God's glory. Now, just for the sake of comparison, I looked up on Google, what are good ways to find joy? And here are the top four things that showed up. Number one is drinking coffee. Number two, reading a good book. Number three is walking or running, usually with your dog. And number four is digital entertainment. So I decided then to take these verses and pick out the four reasons that Paul highlights to rejoice. So number one, justification. Number two, peace with God. Number three, the privilege of access to God. And number four, a preview and a hope for our future. The contrast I'm trying to make here is that if we have accepted Christ into our hearts as the Redeemer and the Savior of our lives, then we have an irreplaceable and amazing hope for the future. A hope that nobody in the rest of the world has unless they know Christ. Everything that the world hopes for and everything that the world finds joy in is fleeting and trivial. It's all immediate gratification with no lasting value or eternal reward. Because to them, the eternal either doesn't exist or it's irrelevant. But we have the privilege of peace with God. This joy in the hope of the future. Therefore, we have reason to rejoice. Not only because we have this eternal hope and because we have the knowledge of the truth, but because the Lord in his grace and mercy has revealed this to us despite our sins and our rejection of him. He has justified us, reconciled us to him, and continues to sanctify us in him. Paul continues on this topic in verses 8 to 10 just after this. He says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We, like Abraham, have been given a promise by God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's Romans 6.23. And what's that saying? That's saying we deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, and we have all sinned, haven't we? Therefore, do we not deserve to die? Not anymore. Through Christ, we have been justified. Through Christ, we have been reconciled to peace with him. And through Christ, we are being sanctified and one day we'll be glorified with him when he returns. This is the hope that we have for the future. But what about the present? How do we now live our lives in light of this amazing promise that we've been given? Good question. That takes me to my third point, which is the hope that we have in our present suffering. Now let's read verses three to four together one more time. Paul says, not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The not only that here suggests that Paul is building off of what he said in the previous verse about rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. He's saying not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. This, in a way, is the application part of the passage. Paul is essentially saying, here is justification, this is the result, and here's how it affects our lives. 
But if we look at the world around us, it seems crazy that Paul could say something like this that would apply to times such as this. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about the earthquake that happened in Turkey a few weeks ago that killed almost 50,000 people. I mean, in our world, a woman can be pregnant for eight and a half months and then make a last-minute decision to abort a full-grown baby. How can Paul say that we can rejoice in this? Well, in order to look at the reason that we can rejoice in suffering, I'd like to address a few different kinds of suffering that we as believers endure. Commentator James Boyce categorizes Christian suffering into three categories. Corrective suffering, constructive suffering, and suffering for the glory of God. Corrective suffering is suffering that is meant to get us on the right path when we have strayed from it. Think of it like that of a parent-child relationship. When the child disobeys the parent and does the wrong thing, as we do every day, the parent is then obligated to correct their child in order for them to learn what is right and wrong. Proverbs 3, 11-12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The Lord is teaching us what is wrong and right through our suffering. Now the second kind of suffering is constructive suffering. This kind of suffering is similar to the idea of a crucible. Now if you don't know what a crucible is, it's a a piece of equipment that metal workers use. It's usually a ceramic or metal container in which other substances can be melted down and purified. The little bits of rock and anything else are taken out as it's melted and is purified and made ready to be sold. In this sense... The Lord is purifying us, is sanctifying us in order to prepare us for heaven. Now the final kind of suffering is suffering for the glory of God. What comes to mind for this kind of suffering is the blind man in John chapter 9. John 9 verses 1 through 3 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered them, It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this perspective is an interesting one. It's a perspective that only believers can hold. For unbelievers, the first two kinds of suffering may be relatable. A child still needs to be disciplined, right? And many people believe in constructive suffering, but only in the sense that they become stronger after it, or more dependent, or a better person. But they hold no eternal value. Only believers can understand that suffering for the glory of God has eternal value. And as believers... Suffering is a hopeful thing. In fact, suffering is an assurance of our salvation. If we are being sanctified through suffering and growing and learning, that is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit within us. Sanctification through suffering, therefore, can give us hope that Christ is in us and that when suffering comes again, the Lord will sanctify and grow us through it. For leadership team last year, uh, we went through the book Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Now, if you haven't read this book, or heard of it, I encourage you to read it. It's a truly amazing book, and I know the whole team benefited from reading it. The title of chapter 5 is Magnifying Christ Through Pain and Death. And in this chapter, he addresses the value of suffering as Christians and the topic of God's love for us in suffering. He says that many people would often adopt the mindset of, if you love me, you wouldn't let me suffer. But Piper says, love is not Christ making much of us or making life easy. Love is doing what he must do at a great cost to himself and often to us, to enable us to enjoy making much of him forever. Now this is vitally important to remember when we are suffering, that God loves us and he is working through us, but also that we are being enabled to make much of him, to glorify him forever. Now what is man's chief end? I know that most of this room could probably recite this with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So not only do we know that through suffering the Lord loves us, but we are suffering for a purpose. We are being crafted in order for us to serve our primary purpose. Now let's consider what Paul says about suffering here. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character then produces hope. Now I think it's pretty easy for us to imagine how suffering produces endurance. I'm sure many of us would think of something like running. 
Now, I don't think there's any runner out there who wouldn't say that they had to suffer at least a little bit to be able to run a marathon. Because that's how it works. You work your muscles hard, it's painful and uncomfortable, but over time they build up resistance and endurance, allowing you to run long distances. Now, it may sound like I'm speaking from experience, but believe me, I strongly dislike running. So, suffering produces endurance, but how does endurance produce character? You know, character is a difficult thing to describe. There's always that classic movie scene where the dad has his son go do something difficult, and the son starts complaining, and the dad goes, keep it up, it builds character, right? Well, the Merriam-Webster definition of character is the attributes or features that make up and distinguish an individual. But I don't think what Paul's saying here is that as we suffer for Christ, we just learn to become tougher, more dependent. In fact, it's the complete opposite in some sense. Through suffering, we actually need to become more dependent on God, spend time with him, and learn to rely on his strength. It is through this, then, that we become like Christ. You become like the people you spend your time around, right? If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy God, we can only do this by becoming like Christ. Jesus is the only person to have ever truly glorified God. Therefore, we must become like Christ in order to fulfill our purpose. And if suffering is a means to become like Christ, then of course we have reason to rejoice in suffering. Because we are fulfilling the very purpose given to us by God. The last part here is that character produces hope. Now, as sinful humans, our immediate reaction to suffering is usually to get angry at God and try to separate ourselves from him and push him away. So if we deny that sinful instinct and we kneel before the throne of God in weakness and dependence upon him, then that's an assurance that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. This assurance then gives us hope for the return of Christ. This takes me to my fourth and final point, that this is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. This may be the shortest point yet, but I believe that it's the most important part of the passage. Verse 5, the final verse, says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I think there are two major things that Paul is telling us here. Number one, this hope that we have in suffering does not put us to shame. And number two, that we did not do this on our own, but it is that the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts. So let's look at the first one. The first question that comes to mind is, in what way would hope put us to shame? Why would we be ashamed of this hope? Well, we need to remember that this hope being talked about here is a hope for the return of Christ. And with the return of Christ comes the final judgment. But what part does the Holy, Holy Spirit play in our judgment? Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance of eternal life. What Paul is saying here then is that we need not be ashamed of our sins anymore when we are judged. Because if we have the Holy Spirit within us, then we have a guarantee that we will be saved and given eternal life. And if we have been justified, therefore we have peace with God. And surely if we are at peace with God, we will be saved when he comes. Paul says this a couple of verses down. I already read this. Verses 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God chose to reconcile us to him while we were enemies, then surely now that we are at peace, we will be saved. Now let's look at the second point Paul makes in this verse, which is that we did not do this on our own, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit. We did nothing for this. Paul doesn't say, and this hope doesn't put us to shame because we reached out and grabbed the Holy Spirits and gave it to ourselves. No, it says because God's love for us, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you were here for our missions conference Sunday a couple of weeks ago, 
Dr. George Murray spoke from the parables in Luke 15. And he emphasized in the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, that the things that were lost did nothing to return themselves. It's not the parable of the coin that grew legs and ran back to the purse that it fell out of. The owner searched and searched until she found the coin, and the shepherd left the 99 to find the one. And it's the same for us. We are not put to shame because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, said that you contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Our justification isn't dependent on us, and our glorification will not be either. It is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now, before I close, I'd like to emphasize one more thing. All of the parables in Luke 15 end the same way. The one who has found the lost gathers their family and friends together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found what I, was lo- what I have lost. Paul says that we rejoice in our hope for the future and we rejoice in our suffering. And all of this is through Christ. Therefore, let us rejoice, rejoice with Christ when the lost are found and let us rejoice in Christ for our salvation. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that through Christ we can have peace with you. That we can rejoice in the hope of his return and in our present suffering. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us that the Holy Spirit has work within us and that we may apply this to our lives and learn to become more like Christ. Bless this time of worship that we have remaining. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.